Good morning. Great to be with you in the house of the Lord. And um, another sweet opportunity to gather together. Seek the face of God, knowing that through Jesus Christ, we are accepted, we are loved, and that God is infinitely for us. I'm going to continue now in worship through the hearing of the word. And as we begin, let's pray together. Lord, we come to you acknowledging our need for you. Lord, our hearts are so fickle and we're so easily distracted and we so quickly forget. Lord, how small we are, how great you are, how short is this life and how long is eternity. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us, Lord, of these truths again today. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see the truth of your word. I pray that we might have a vision of Christ today, that we would see him, the risen Lord, at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us, The heavenly throng, Lord, singing his praises, eagerly awaiting the day when the skies will roll back like a scroll. The trump will sound, the angels will cry, Christ will descend. Every eye will see him. And those who have waited patiently for him will receive their reward. We wait eagerly for that day. Help us, Lord, today to believe you, believe your word, believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. And as I begin, I'd like to go back... I confess I feel like this, this text and particularly this, this section in the book of Galatians is kind of hard to follow. It's easy to miss the forest for the trees. And so what I want to do is I want again to remind you kind of the context that Paul is writing into, the context of Judaism in which Paul lived and that Jesus lived in as well. So I want you to for a second imagine that you're a Jew <laughs> and you've been told all your life, that, that uh, you're a child of the promise. God gave the promise to Abraham and gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, uh, which meant that if you were circumcised, you are covenant, you're a participant in the covenant that God made with Abraham to bless him, to give him a land and a people, and to bless the world through him. And so Abraham's blood runs through your veins. You follow all the traditions of the Jewish culture. You keep the law of Moses. Uh, 
God has favored you. You alone of all the nations have the written law and divine revelation from heaven. You alone have your moral act together while all the pagans and other nations of this world are idolaters and live in immorality. And to your nation was even promised a ruler, a king that would rule over all the other nations and you with him. This is, you're a Jew. That's who you are. And that's what you've been taught your whole life. And then one day a man comes to town. And he says things like, I've come to fulfill the law. He says things like, the law and the tradition say this, but I say to you something different. Who says things like, One day, many people will come from the east and the west, yes, those pagan Gentile nations, and they will recline at table with Abraham while the sons of the kingdom are cast into outer darkness. He was good friends, in fact, real cousins with a guy who came before him, a guy who said, don't trust that because your father Abraham, you're right with God, because God can raise up children from Abraham from these rocks. A guy who said, you think you're special because you have the temple of God where the presence of God dwells. But let me tell you something. A day is coming when not a stone will remain upon a stone. And in fact, he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. You got to understand, if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, if you understood what he was saying, you probably wouldn't like him. And a lot of people didn't. They didn't understand what he came to do. And it was very difficult. You've got to understand, really difficult for the Jews to grasp this. So that's the context into which Jesus lived, in which Paul is writing. And when Christ came, the Jews had a very, they struggled greatly with understanding what Christ came to do. But Paul understood. And so he defends the gospel at all costs. So that's what we're going to talk about. Today, So if you have your Bible, and if you're able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God? We're going to pick up where we left off in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when, Gentile, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, 
they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The word of God. You may be seated. So there's two things we're going to see from this text this morning. The gospel, gospel freedom preserved for us and gospel fellowship extended to us. Gospel freedom preserved for us and gospel fellowship extended to us. First, gospel freedom preserved for us. Let me read verses 1 through 5 again. You're going to have to think about it very carefully to follow. He says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in, to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, so what are we doing? We're jumping into the middle of Paul's line of argument. So, if you remember from last week, Paul is defending his thesis, that is, that his gospel is not man's gospel. So, Judaizers had come into the churches in Galatia undermining Paul's authority and saying that, well, he really derived his authority from the other apostles and that his message isn't 100% accurate. And it seemed to even suggest that he was teaching something different than the other apostles in Jerusalem were teaching. Well, Paul defends his authority by saying that my gospel was not man's gospel because I received it directly by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And he says, when, when I was converted, my life drastically changed so that you know that I had a vision of Jesus Christ and that after I was converted, I didn't even visit Jerusalem for over three years. And then the first time I visited Jerusalem, I only stayed for 15 days and I didn't hang around. And then I went back up to uh, the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which are, are a good bit north of uh, Israel, Jerusalem. Now, in our text, Paul's continuing that line of thought, and he's saying, and then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So think about what Paul's saying. He's saying, he's saying he only visited Jerusalem twice in over 17 years. And so, of course, his gospel is not dependent on the other apostles because he never sees them. He's only been to Jerusalem twice in over 17 years. And why does Paul go up to Jerusalem this time? He says uh, in verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Now, scholars debate the chronology of these events. It's, It's very difficult to figure out what lines up with what. Because we know we have an account of Paul's life in the book of Acts. And so some scholars think there's there's... There's two events people debate. There's, there's an event in Acts 11 where Paul takes Barnabas and goes to Jerusalem uh, to, to bring support to the poor Christians, to bring famine relief to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And then there's another event in Acts chapter 15 where they actually have the Jerusalem council where they actually address an issue very similar to this. So lots of people think it's that. 
But I think actually the evidence leans itself towards the first event. So I'm just I'm going to go with that. I won't have time to defend that right now. But Paul says he goes up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. In Acts chapter 11, when Paul goes up, he, well, the reason he goes up to Jerusalem for famine relief, how does he know that there's, a fam- there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem? Because a prophet named Agabus has gone up to Antioch and by revelation told them that there's going to be a famine. So the Gentiles begin to s- save up money so that they could send it to the poor Christians down in Jerusalem in order for famine relief because they don't have any food or money. And so that's why Paul goes down there to Jerusalem. It's by revelation. That's what he's talking about. But while he was there, there was already brewing kind of underneath the surface, so to speak, this question of Gentiles being saved. And he, he, and he so remember, this is over 17 years after his conversion and after he's been preaching the gospel. And he goes up to Jerusalem and he has a, a private meeting with the pillars of the church. James, Peter, and John. And he, he, he shares with them the gospel that he proclaims. And he says this uh, confusing statement in verse uh, 2 about, he says, In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. The reason why that's confusing is because if you read it, it sounds like it sounds like he's looking to the apostles for validation of his gospel. But that can't be right because he just has argued in the whole first chapter that he doesn't need the apostles' validation for his gospels. So I think the reason he says that uh, that I was not in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. I think the reason he said that was because. Paul knows that if somehow the Jerusalem apostles are, are being persuaded by these Judaizers, and if they begin to, to be persuaded of something else, and they begin to and the Judaizers then go to the, the churches that Paul has planted all across the Roman Empire and tell them, well, the Jerusalem apostles are teaching this, and Paul's teaching this, if they do that, it's going to undermine everything Paul did. It's going to undermine everything Paul did in sacrificing and going all around, uh, proclaiming the gospel of free grace to the Gentiles. And so I think that's why Paul says that. But the main point is this, is that they have this private meeting with the apostles to, to understand and think about what Paul is preaching, the gospel that Paul is preaching. And um, the impetus behind this meeting was Paul says that there are false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Now think about so you have to understand exactly what Paul's saying. He calls them false brothers. They're not Christians. They're not believers. But they're in the Jerusalem churches. And they're teaching a false gospel of not grace, not by salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, but a gospel of salvation partly by faith in Christ and partly by works, keeping the Jewish law. And the false brothers, it says he, they came in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ. That is, in Christ, we as Christians are free from the law. You have to understand this. There's, there's a movement today among some people who say that Christians should keep the Old Testament law. That's exactly what Paul said not to do. Because you're adding works to salvation. We are not in Christ. We are not bound to the letter of the law and its Jewish and historical and cultural trappings. Because in Christ, 
the law is not something outside of us that molds us uh, to a, a, a standard of righteousness outside of us. Rather, in Christ, the spirit of the law dwells within us, molding us to God's righteousness, not by external conformation, but internal transformation. Let me say that again. In Christ, by the Spirit, the, the, the law is not something outside of us, but the Spirit of the law dwells within us, molding us to God's righteousness, not by external conformation, but internal transformation. In other words, in the new covenant people, we relate to God differently because we have the Spirit living inside of us. So we don't, we're not required to keep all the trappings of the Old Testament law. In the New Testament, the Old Testament anticipates that. I could, I, that's another sermon. The Old Testament anticipates that. And the New Testament shows how we're, in Christ we're no longer required to keep the Old Testament law because those things were temporary, pointing towards the fulfillment, something greater. And that was the false brother's error. They couldn't see that the fact that in Christ he came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the Old Testament types and shadows of sacrifices and tabernacles and temples and things like that. He came to fulfill the purpose for which those were given, which was that God gave them to the Jews for a season in order to prepare the way to bring about the Christ. Who is the fulfillment? Who is the every, who is the fulfillment of every promise? Who came to who came to complete the plan that God had planned from the beginning? It was a temporary measure to bring about God's fulfillment of the promise. They couldn't accept that Christ had fulfilled the purpose of the Old Testament law and rendered it no longer binding. The best example I could come up with to explain this is that of a cast. Any of you ever have broken bones before? Has anyone ever never broken a bone? Wow, that's astounding. Okay, that has nothing to do with my sermon. All right. Okay, so the best thing I could think of is a cast on a broken arm. Why do you put a cast on a broken arm? To keep it, to keep it so it's immovable, right? To keep it straight, so to speak, in order to what? To pave the way for healing, right? That's what the cast is for. When Jesus came, he brought about the healing, the saving, and the restoration that the Old Testament law predicted and paved the way for, but it couldn't bring itself. The cast doesn't bring the healing. It just holds it straight because God heals it. Your body heals it, right? The, the way God designed your body, it brings healing. God brings the healing. The cast just keeps your arm straight. And in fact, the, if someone goes around and has a cast on, you don't, say, you don't say, oh, he's got, you know, he's perfectly fine. The cast itself shows the need for healing. Does that make sense? God gave the law, and all the law does was show how desperately we are unrighteous. Because God had to give us a law to tell us how bad we are, right? It, it doesn't bring the healing. It just shows us how bad off we are. That's like a cast. But get this. The, Jew, the Jews, when Christ, so think about this. When Christ came, the purpose of the cast of the law was fulfilled, right? What do you do when your arm is healed and you have a cast on it? You cut it off and you throw it away because you don't need it anymore. It has served its purpose. But think about this. The Jews had been wearing the cast of the Old Testament law for so long, it became part of who they were. 
It became something that they wore for so long that they could not imagine themselves without it. And when God opened his salvation to all nations, which was his plan the whole time through Christ, and people were coming in to salvation by faith in Christ who were not Jews, they couldn't bear the thought that people could be saved and didn't look like them and act like them and wear the same cast that they were wearing. It was hard for them to handle. By requiring obedience to the law for Gentiles to be saved, they were trying to put the cast back on a healed arm. They were saying that Christ alone is not enough to bring full forgiveness and salvation, but you got to keep your Jewish act together too, and only then can you be saved. But to go back to the law is to trust in something for healing and salvation that could never bring it. It is trusting not in Christ, but ultimately in yourself to justify your standing before God. And that's the rub right there. We, we, grace is a strange thing because it requires you to humble yourself. We like to come to God and say, God, look at all my church attendance. Look at all my Bible reading. Look at all my prayer. You owe me salvation. God says, I don't owe you anything. In fact, if I gave you what you deserve, you'd go straight to hell. But me, in my mercy, in spite of your sins, you contribute nothing to your salvation. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But I have sent my son to pay the full and final penalty for your sins so that if you unite with him by faith in Christ, everything, I, everything that you need to be saved, I have already accomplished for you in him. Just believe. It's free. You don't have to be a Jew to be saved. You don't have to be anything else. You don't, your works don't add to salvation. We don't go to church to be saved. But let me tell you, if the spirit of God is in you, you're going to want to be in church. But it doesn't save you. Get, you'd, be, you'd be surprised the number of people who I talk to who think just because they got wet, they're, they're going to heaven. That's not how it works. If you haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to heaven. That is, been born again, been changed by the power and the Spirit of God. It's a new life in Christ, a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. The Judaizers, they found their identity more in Jewish law and customs than they did in Christ. They, they claimed to believe in Christ, but they could not get past. They, they still had to be Jews. I have to be this. This is who I am. You hear that a lot today. But let me tell you something. If your culture or your race or any other group that you associate with or identify with, if that, if that loyalty takes the place and the supremacy of Christ in your life, you're not saved. Christ will not take second place in your life. He's not. When you create the worlds by the word of your power, and when you are crucified and when you rise from the dead, you can be supreme in other people's lives too. But until you do that, Christ is going to be supreme in your life. And if you're not, you're living against reality. And you'll, the Bible says that if we don't turn to Christ for the mercy that only he offers us, we will die in our sins and we will have to pay for them ourselves. Christ will not take second place in your life. 
to add requirements to salvation is to put the impetus of salvation on the person rather than on Christ. And this was not a small matter because Paul calls them false brothers. So Paul did not yield. And what was the resolution to their confrontation in Jerusalem? Paul says that Titus was not forced to be circumcised. In other words, Paul's gospel was vindicated. The pillars of the church in Jerusalem did not require Titus to be circumcised. And so Paul's gospel was vindicated. And so again, in the context, he's writing to the Galatians to defend his truth, his word, his gospel. Okay. So what's some applications that we can draw from this text? First, Christ must be our supreme identity. This is important. We live in a day in what's called identity politics. All right? And I'm talking to people on every side of the aisle, okay? What we do, this is, 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 this is, how, this is how culture works. This is why we can't have intellectual, actual conversations with people anymore. You label them, and then you dismiss them. You don't listen to what other people have to say. You just slap a label on them and say, well, that's because you're, you're, that, you're that group, you're that label, so I don't have to listen to anything that you say. Identity politics. But Christ says, but let me say something. This, this cannot be so with Christians. Let me say it again. This cannot be so with Christians. Look, politics are important. We should care about things, and because of our Christian convictions, we should care about things. But listen, you are Christian infinitely more and before you're Republican or Democrat or anything else. That means that Christ is supreme over every other loyalty you have. Therefore, you will not blindly accept anything anybody says just because they're part of your group. Nor will you blindly dismiss anything everyone else says just because they're not a part of your group. Why? Because those things pale in comparison to the infinite lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you will listen to all things, weigh everything biblically based on the word of God, and make decisions that may sometimes align with one group, may sometimes align with another, oftentimes may align with neither group. But it doesn't matter because you're not first those things, you're first a Christian. And you belong to Christ. Listen, this is important. It is, people are getting so confused because, because based off, God help me, what people see in the world and what people see on some Facebook feeds and et cetera, et cetera, some people think that you are more Republican than you are a Christian. I'm telling you, don't do that. Don't fall into that trap. You need to talk about Jesus more than you talk about Donald Trump. Okay? America, I praise God that I live in America. But let me tell you something. Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of a mighty uh, uh, image that was made of different metals and, and materials that represented different kingdoms. And in his vision, a stone came. And crushed the feet of the image and crushed every nation on earth underneath it and, and, and expanded and filled the whole world. That stone was Jesus Christ. 
the kingdom of God will rule over every nation. And every nation that has ever existed, including the United States, will be a blip in history when Christ comes. We live for another kingdom, another world. Christ must be our supreme identity. There's another thing I want to say with regards to that. I use the example of politics, but there's lots more things. For example, sexuality. Lots of people think if you have a certain kind of desire, that therefore that desire is now my identity. And so it's a very powerful argument because if you can convince someone that's who they are, then someone who says, well, that's wrong, uh, they just dismiss you by saying, well, you're just making me deny who I am. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is that the Bible says we actually have sinful desires, and the desires that you have are causing you to be something that you're not. When we give in to our sinful desires, we are being less than human. And Jesus Christ, in coming to renew our lives and renew our lives and to change us from the inside out to conform to God's righteousness, he is recreating us into the humanity we were supposed to be. Sin, sin does not make you more human. It makes you less human. And when God comes and he changes you, he makes you true humanity. That's why Jesus Christ was called the second Adam. The first Adam fell. The second Adam lives. And if we are in him, we will live too. So a lesson we take is that Christ is our supreme identity. Another application is that Paul says, he says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for you. We must take a stand on the gospel of free grace. And we must take a stand for Christian convictions. It would have been easy for Paul to yield on this issue. He really could have because if you read Paul carefully, Paul did not say, never, he never said circumcision was bad or that being a Jew was bad. Never. Rather, what he said was, being a Jew is not the basis of your right standing before God. The Jew, many of the Jews thought that they were right before God just because they had Abraham's blood in their veins. Paul says, no, our right standing before God is only because of Christ. So Paul refused to yield the truth of the gospel. And we must... Likewise, refuse to yield gospel truths because there's lots of yielding going on these days. There are some hills worth dying on. But sometimes that's not our problem at all. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we don't take a stand where we need to take a stand. Sometimes it's the opposite problem. I found in a lot of places and churches that people will die on molehills and they'll surrender mountains. They'll take something that does not matter at all and die on it and leave the church. And they'll surrender mountains. Let us ask Jesus Christ what hills are worth dying on and which are. And let's seek to obey him and live for him and proclaim him with our lives. Gospel freedom preserved for us. That's point number one. Point number two. Gospel fellowship extended to us. 
gospel fellowship extended to us. Verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel uh, to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only, they asked us, to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so again, Paul is defending his authority. He's defending his gospel is not from man. And he gives one final reason here. Uh, he says that he, didn't, he did not require the validation of the other apostles for his authority and for his gospel. But when he did talk to them and when he did go to the pillars of the church to share with him what he preached among the Gentiles, he said, they didn't add nothing to me. They didn't add anything to me. In fact, they extended the right hand of fellowship to me. And what did they do? They acknowledged that Paul had a calling. Paul had a calling to the Gentiles, and they had a calling to the Jews. In other words, hear me now, the difference between the apostles, Paul and the others, was not one of theological formulation, but cultural contextualization. Let me say that again. The difference between the apostles was not one of theological formulation, but cultural contextualization. In other words, Peter and the others ministered primarily to Jews. Paul ministered primarily to Gentiles. And because of that, at times, their ministry looked different. That's important. Because they ministered in different cultures and in different contexts, their ministry looked different from one another, and it's easy to look at something that's different and say that it's wrong. And that may not be the case. And so Paul, when he shared his gospel with those in Jerusalem, they confirmed it and extended the right hand of fellowship to him. So what can we learn from this text? The first is this, is that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. If anyone would get a pass on being a Christian superstar, it would be James, Peter, and John. All right? If anyone gets a pass, that would be them. If James, Peter, and John walked into that door right now, I would stop my sermon, invite Peter to approach the pulpit, and say, go after it. Okay? All right? If they were here, I would be hanging on their every word. And so would you, and we should. But the Apostle Paul acknowledged that even though they're pillars and they rightly deserve respect, they're just men. And they are not infallible. They are men with sins and flaws. And the problem is, is when we put such people up on a pedestal, and we do this from time to time, we find people who we think really got together, who we really admire, and we can put them on a pedestal. The problem is, is eventually, oftentimes what happens is that person falls and then we become disillusioned. In fact, many people say that that's the reason they're, you know, they're not 
uh, quote-unquote Christians. They say, I trusted so-and-so, and then they let me down. Well, you need to understand how sinful sin is and how powerful it is in our lives. And so no one is free from the threat of falling, serious, falling into serious sin. We should honor those who are rightly in authority, but we should also remain a biblical and a sense of fear and trembling of the sin in our own lives and the sin in their lives also. I'll give you just one more application of this, and that is just because somebody claims to be an expert doesn't mean you have to believe everything they say. You know, we live in a day of fake news, which, I mean, I never believe the stuff I see on the news anyways. And the Internet is not better. But some people do this. They think just because they read it or just because so-and-so said it's absolutely true. I read commentaries. I read commentaries all the time who are by faithful, godly men. But sometimes I read stuff in them and I just think that's not right. Doesn't mean I disrespect them. Doesn't mean I disagree with them. But we have to learn ourselves. And God, I believe, holds us accountable, each one of us, for us to personally think critically and think biblically and discern. Paul says in, in Romans 12 too, he says... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God holds each of us accountable to think critically, to think wisely, to think biblically when we face the complex issues of this world. God shows no partiality. Another application God calls different people to different spheres of ministry. God calls different people to different spheres of ministry. The apostle Paul was given by God to proclaim primarily to the Gentiles, and Peter and others primarily to the Jews. But the key is they were on the same team. Some of us, too, have certain passions and callings, and sometimes we get frustrated at other people because what is so important to us doesn't seem so important to them. Well, maybe they just have a different calling, a different passion, a different direction God has given them. And so what we need to do is that we all need to find our own calling, our own thing that God has given us to do, and pursue it with all our might. The problem is not having different callings. The problem is when we sit back and, have, and act like we have no calling and do nothing. But we take up the mantle that Christ has given us. We seek to not to be served, but to serve. We find out. Find out where you can serve God in ministry. And do it with all your might. And the last application I want to talk about is the importance of contextualization. The importance of contextualization. The Judaizers made a fatal error when it came to the Christian faith. They thought... That to be a proper child of God, you had to add Judaism and all its cultural trappings to faith in Christ. And again, as I mentioned before, some people reject the gospel today in this way. They think if you, it's a different, it's a difference not in externals, but it's a difference in the matter of the heart, right? A person who's born again is most, almost 100% going to go to church and going to read his Bible and going to pray and have things that we associate with Christianity. But the thing is, is you don't need the Holy Spirit to do those things. And the question is, it's a matter of your heart. 
what do you under what are you functionally functionally relying on as the basis of your right standing before God? If you if you if if you if someone asked you and you, oh, you get to the gates of heaven and Peter, I, I don't I don't think Peter's actually going to be there, but let's just say say argument. Peter's right there and he says, "Why should I let you into this heaven?" If the first thing out your lips are say, "Well, I did." Functionally, you were trusting in yourself for salvation. You missed it. But if you say, I don't deserve to be in heaven, but because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and my faith in him, Peter's going to kick the gate open and walk in. That's our only access to God. And so the question is, what is functionally at the heart of your life? What are you basing your standing before God on? But now many of us, we don't necessarily associate uh, those things that tightly, hopefully. But rather, as I mentioned before, we make maybe a lesser error. And that is, we assume that what Christianity looks for us is what Christianity is supposed to look like everywhere. Now, we're kind of strange about this because... For some reason, we intuitively know that if a missionary goes to Africa, he should, he should probably not require them to sing English hymns, right? But what should they do? Well, they should write songs in their own languages that are biblically accurate that express their heart to God, right? What is that? That's contextualization. It's not wrong. It's just different. They're going to sing different songs. They're going to worship in a different way, but they're worshiping the same God in a way that is acceptable and appropriate uh, and biblically sound in their culture. And so we have to be really careful when we think about this. We have to make sure that the message doesn't get drowned out by the messenger. <clears throat> and you know what changes culture? is not just distance, but time. Time can change culture. And so, I think we as a church must think about carefully what we can do to develop an environment that will make the gospel most intelligible and understandable to the culture in which we live. I'm not proposing anything specific at this moment, but what I'm saying is that if you went somewhere else and tried to make their Christianity look exactly like ours, you would be putting an unnecessary stumbling block in their way to Christ. You would be saying, you have to become like me culturally before you can be a real Christian. You see? So every generation, I believe, has the responsibility to try to remain as biblically faithful as possible while trying to make the gospel most understandable and intelligible as possible to the culture and context in which they find themselves in. And that does, at times, require, will require some bending. But I think that is the spirit of Christ. When Jesus Christ, John chapter 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus 
was being worshipped in white robes with eyes of fire and feet of bronze by multitudes and multitudes of angels. And he became a baby and was born in a manger. Jesus bent for you. He yielded so that you could be saved. So that you could understand the message he came to bring. Sometimes we will have to bend. But the Judaizers, they balked. They weren't willing to bend and almost split the church and it almost lost the gospel. But by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, we can be faithful in our generation. That's what the Bible says of David. He was faithful in his generation. That's what we need to do. So, what have we learned today? The freedom of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel preserved for us, the fellowship of the gospel presented to us. Jesus Christ came in to usher in a new order, a new kingdom that was not of this world. He is the second Adam, restoring humanity to the way it was meant to be, a people redeemed and changed by the Spirit of God. And he is doing this from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And although it will look different in different places, our differences are infinitely overwhelmed by our radical oneness. We're all saved by grace and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel that Paul died to preserve for us. That's the gospel of grace. And so I close now and extend an invitation to everyone in here. Here's your chance. God is calling God is calling out. He's calling out through his word. He's saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's free. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get your act together. God will take care of that. You just come to Jesus Christ. Bow the knee to him. Don't harden your heart. Come to Christ and you will be saved. We're going to sing a song of commitment. I'm going to be standing right here. I invite anyone whom the Lord's speaking to, come deal with the Lord today. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind and merciful and faithful to us. We thank you that you have preserved for us a gospel of grace, that your plan all along, Lord, was to win for Christ a a nation, a tribe, a people, a royal priesthood, a, a, a holy possession. For Christ, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we, Lord, are the nations. We, Lord, are the far off, and you have reached out to us. And I pray even now, Lord, you might reach to someone in here who does not know you.